This is Chapter Thirty Six of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain. Chapter Thirty Six. The Poems of Mrs. Moore. The Sad Fate of William Upson. A Fellow Traveler Imitating the Prince of Wales. A Would Be Dude. Arrival at Sydney. Curious Town Names with Poem. There are several good protections against temptations but the surest is cowardice puddin'head wilson's new calendar names are not always what they seem the common welsh name is pronounced jackson puddin'head wilson's new calendar friday december thirteenth sailed at three p m in the mararoa summer seas and a good ship life has nothing better monday three days of paradise warm and sunny and smooth the sea a luminous mediterranean blue one lolls in a long chair all day under deck awnings and reads and smokes in measureless content one does not read prose at such a time but poetry i have been reading the poems of mrs julia a moore again and i find in them the same grace and melody that attracted me when they were first published twenty years ago and have held me in happy bonds ever since the sentimental song-book has long been out of print and has been forgotten by the world in general but not by me i carry it with me always it and goldsmith's deathless story indeed it has the same deep charm for me that the vicar of wakefield has and i find in it the same subtle touch the touch that makes an intentionally humorous episode pathetic and an intentionally pathetic one funny in her time mrs moore was called the sweet singer of michigan and was best known by that name i have read her book through twice to-day with the purpose of determining which of her pieces has most merit and i am persuaded that for wide grasp and sustained power william upson may claim first place william upson air the major's only son come all good people far and near oh come and see what you can hear it's of a young man true and brave that is now sleeping in his grave now william upson was his name if it's not that it's all the same he did enlist in a cruel strife and it caused him to lose his life he was perry upson's eldest son his father loved his noble son this son was nineteen years of age when first in the rebellion he engaged his father said that he might go but his dear mother she said no oh stay at home dear billy she said but she could not turn his head he went to nashville in tennessee there his kind friends he could not see he died among strangers so far away they did not know where his body lay he was taken sick and lived four weeks and oh how his parents weep but now they must in sorrow mourn for billy has gone to his heavenly home oh if his mother could have seen her son for she loved him her darling son if she could heard his dying prayer it would ease her heart till she met him there how it would relieve his mother's heart to see her son from this world apart and hear his noble words of love as he left this world for that above now it will relieve his mother's heart for her son is laid in our graveyard for now she knows that his grave is near she will not shed so many tears 
although she knows not that it was her son for his coffin could not be opened it might be someone in his place for she could not see his noble face december seventeen reached sydney december nineteen in the train fellow of thirty with four valises a slim creature with teeth which made his mouth look like a neglected churchyard he had solidified hair solidified with pomatum it was all one shell he smoked the most extraordinary cigarettes made of some kind of manure apparently these and his hair made him smell like the very nation he had a low-cut vest on which exposed a deal of frayed and broken and unclean shirt-front showy studs of imitation gold they had made black discs on the linen oversized sleeve buttons of imitation gold the copper base showing through ponderous watch-chain of imitation gold i judged that he couldn't tell the time by it for he asked smythe what time it was once he wore a coat which had been gay when it was young five o'clock tea trousers of a light tint and marvelously soiled yellow mustache with a dashing upward whirl at the ends foxy shoes imitation patent leather he was a novelty an imitation dude he would have been a real one if he could have afforded it but he was satisfied with himself you could see it in his expression and in all his attitudes and movements he was living in a dude dreamland where all his squalid shams were genuine and himself a sincerity it disarmed criticism it mollified spite to see him so enjoy his imitation languors and arts and airs and his studied daintinesses of gesture and misbegotten refinements it was plain to me that he was imagining himself the prince of wales and was doing everything the way he thought the prince would do it for bringing his four valises aboard and stowing them in the nettings he gave his porter four cents and lightly apologized for the smallness of the gratuity just with the condescendingest little royal air in the world he stretched himself out on the front seat and rested his pomatum cake on the middle arm and stuck his feet out of the window and began to pose as the prince and work his dreams and languors for exhibition and he would indolently watch the blue films curling up from his cigarette and inhale the stench and look so grateful and would flip the ash away with the daintiest gesture unintentionally displaying his brass ring in the most intentional way why it was as good as being in marlborough house itself to see him do it so like there was other scenery in the trip that of the hawkesbury river in the national park region fine extraordinarily fine with spacious views of stream and lake imposingly framed in woody hills and every now and then the noblest groupings of mountains and the most enchanting rearrangements of the water effects further along green flats thinly covered with gum forests with here and there the huts and cabins of small farmers engaged in raising children still further along arid stretches lifeless and melancholy then newcastle a rushing town capital of the rich coal regions approaching schoon wide farming and grazing levels with pretty frequent glimpses of a troublesome plant a particularly devilish little prickly pear daily damned in the orisons of the agriculturist imported by a lady of sentiment and contributed gratis to the colony blazing hot all day december twenty back to sydney blazing hot again 
from the newspaper and from the map i have made a collection of curious names of australasian towns with the idea of making a poem out of them tumut taki murriwalumba barrel ballarat mullingudgery murrurundi wagga wagga wyalong morumbidgee goomeroo wallaway wangaree wanila wara kapia yankalilla yaranyaka yakamurundi kaiwaka kumara taranga geelong tongarira kaikura wakatipu ohipara whitepinga gulwa manapara nankita maiponga kapunda kuringa penola nangwari kangurong komom kuliwerti kilanula narakort mullawerti binam wallaru wariga mandura haraki rangariri tiwamut taranaki tuumba gundiwindi jerildari wangaroa wollongong wollamolo bambala kulgardi bendigo kunambal kutamundra wulgulga mitagong jambira kondoparinga kuitpa tankila o kaparinga talunga yatala parawira mururu wangira wulandunga bulara pernati parameta tarum narandira daniloquin kawakawa it may be best to build the poem now and make the weather help a sweltering day in australia to be read soft and low with the lights turned down the bumble of faints in the hot barrelled tree where fierce mullingudgery smothering fires far from the breezes of coolgardie burn ghastly and blue as the day expires and Mariwalumba complaineth in song for the garlanded bowers of Wulumulu, and the Ballarat fly, and the lone Wulagong, they dream of the gardens of Jambira. The wallaby sighs for the Murrumbidgee, for the velvety sod of the Munopara, where the waters of healing from Mulawurti flow dim in the gloaming by Yaranyaka. The Kapia sorrows for lost Wallaway, and sigheth in secret for Murundi. The Wangaroo Wombat lamenteth the day that made him an exile from Jerildery. The Tewamute Tumut from Wiriga's glade, the Nankita Swallow, the Wallaroo Swan, they long for the peace of the Timura shade, and thy balmy soft airs, O sweet Mitagong. The Karinga Buffalo pants in the sun, the Kondaparinga lies gaping for breath, the Kongarong Kamon to the shadow has won, but the Kumaru sinks in the slumber of death. In the weltering hell of the Mururu plain, the Yatala Wangari withers and dies, and the Waro Wanala, demented with pain, to the Wulgulga woodlands despairingly flies. Sweet Nangwari's desolate Kunambul wails, and the Tunkilo Quito in sables is dressed for the wangari winds fall asleep in the sails and the bularu life-breeze is dead in the west my pongo kapunda o slumber no more young 
are aweary. Be warned there's death in the air. Kilanula, wherefore shall the prayer of Panola be scorned? Kutamundra and Taki and Wakatipu, Tuwumba, Kaikura are lost from Onkaporinga to far Umaru. All burn in this hell's holocaust. Paramata and Binam are gone to their rest in the vale of Tapani Tarum. Kawakawa, Daniloquin, all that was best in the earth are but graves in a tomb. Narandara mourns, Cameron answers not when the roll of the scatheless we cry. Tangarira, Gundawindi, Wulundunga, the spot is mute and forlorn where ye lie. Those are good words for poetry, among the best I have ever seen. There are eighty-one in the list. I did not need them all, but I have knocked down sixty-six of them, which is a good bag, it seems to me, for a person not in the business. Perhaps a poet laureate could do better, but a poet laureate gets wages, and that is different. When I write poetry, I do not get any wages. Often I lose money by it. The best word in that list, and the most musical and gurgly, is Woolamulu. It is a place near Sydney, and is a favorite pleasure resort. It has eight O's in it. End of chapter 36